Uh, welcome everyone to Pen Pen Pals for a new series we're covering, uh, Madoka Magica. I'm Alex. Hey, this is Blix. Oh my God. <laughs> There's a cube in my throat. Uh, let me do that again. Hi, this is Blixa. And hey, it's Ben. Um, and we have a new guest with us this time. Uh, who's a local thespian, I think, and no stranger to Magical Girl anime. Please welcome Marley. Hello. Marley, so uh, you're first time on the show. So unfortunately, you got to get put on the spot. Ah. Usually we ask people what their experience with anime is, but I was wondering, I guess more specifically, what's your experience with Magical Girl anime? Okay, well, my experience with anime and my experience with Magical Girl anime begin at the same time with the glory that is Sailor Moon. It was it was the summer between my fifth grade and sixth grade year. It was very formative. I wrote essays about it in college, about just how important Sailor Moon was to me and kind of my adolescent development, um, both for what the show itself taught me as well as for kind of who I had to become in order to be a a Sailor Moon fan at a time when that was looked down upon as little kitty and childish, Mm. you know, kind of stupid. We're getting this lovely renaissance now of like, oh, Sailor Moon's retro. It's so cool. Uh, Which it wasn't when I was a child. And I grew stronger, I think, in part for having to kind of fight back against what people thought of my intellect for loving it. But, you know, since that time, I've watched lots of Magical Girl series, lots of series in general. I've seen more than 450 anime total. Whoa. That's very. Do you, do you have a list that's very specific? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I, I use a, a wonderful website, myanimelist.net, um, mm. helps keep track of everything I've seen and also everything I intend to watch and like what episode number I'm on of stuff. And I love it. How long is your intend to watch list? I keep it under a hundred. I always keep okay. it under. 100. That's very responsible. <laughs> I'm not usually a math like a data person, but I do love having my my little anime stats that I can be like, ah, yes. And I saw this many yeah. series from this decade. Uh, can I can I ask you a question about Sailor Moon? Sure, always. It's special to me. I watched it uh, in my first year of transition, and I thought it was just going to be a, a light, fluffy romp. And then I was like surprised to find that it like emotionally moved me, and there was like themes that spoke to me. Was there something specific about Sailor Moon that meant a lot to you? I always, and this is a big thing for me, I think, in Magical Girl series in general, is so much of the genre has to deal with the isolation that people feel Mm. and trying to come to terms with what makes them different and why that's a good thing, why it's a special thing and not just something isolating. Um, And we see, I think, at Sailor Moon, all these different characters who are very different character types and yet deal with isolation. They, They all represent different forms of isolation and yet kind of come together in this way that's incredibly empowering um, to kind of come back. Don't make me cry in the first 10 minutes. (laughs) We have a ways to go. That's really, thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah, uh, interesting and, and and poignant that you bring up Sailor Moon because Sailor Moon is very, uh, you know, formative to you, also formative to the genre as a whole, right? It's not the golden bat of Magical Girl anime. Like, it's not the first one, but it is kind of the Superman of Magical Girl anime, right? Like, even Sailor Moon's costume is very American. She's blonde. So I feel like everything that comes after Sailor Moon is definitely judged by the metric of Sailor Moon, right? Sailor Moon didn't... I, I don't think it, it didn't invent any of the tropes we associate with the genre, but it's mm. really cemented their popularity, the, the, the transformation sequence. The cute animal sidekick from outer space. <gasps> you scared me. What are you doing here? Why, Serena, I came to see you, of course. Who else? <gasps> A talking cat. Oh, man, I have been studying too hard. Right, like things of that mm-hmm. nature. Sailor Moon's in a lot of ways credited with having revitalized the genre in the 1990s in in my head it's like right next to dragon ball z and maybe that's just because they like showed them right next to each other on like back in the day yeah but i'm just sort of like oh yeah it's like the girl dragon ball z like it's sort of that you know it had like a million episodes yeah it was just sort of like the pinnacle version of whatever that was i think in the same way that dragon ball z was sort of like the the fighting anime that i don't know i it's funny you say that like you know maybe you were a little bit older when you're watching it but i remember then dragon ball z and sailor moon is almost like the anime that people that didn't like anime still watched i totally agree but i think there was a difference in how anime viewers and some non-anime viewers how they would differentiate sailor moon and and uh uh, dragon ball z which is i think a a really common and terrible dynamic in uh gendered media essentially misogyny yeah exactly (laughs) like dbz was kind of given a pass because they're like it's just a show about fighting it doesn't have to be any deeper than that as opposed to Sailor Moon, I, I always got the impression that people looked down on it because it was like for teenage girls. And like, at least when I was growing up, any media that was directed towards teenage girls was like, you know, derided, looked down upon. Even for girls watching them? Well, not the people experiencing them. They would celebrate it. And I yeah. hope they didn't feel bad about it. But I definitely experienced things where Sailor Moon would get a bad treatment simply because it was hmm. uh, uh, marketed towards girls. This is a lot of where where my love of the Maho Shoujo genre comes out and why I think it's so incredibly important. The very, what's considered to be the first Maho Shoujo anime, uh, Mahotsukai Sari, uh, or Little Witch Girl Sally, um, which came out in 1966. It's considered by many to be the first shoujo anime. It's considered by many to be the first anime that had young girls as its target demographic. Um, so we see right from, you know, the genre's origins that this was a genre that was important to the empowerment of young women because it was the first anime meant for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marley, did, did we cover your background? Oh, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, let's, let's go into that now. So we've, uh, 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 the reason we brought you onto the show is that I heard through the grapevine that you are kind of a scholar of, uh, uh, Maho Shoujo. I am already impressed. <laughs> and I've heard that maybe you give talks on lesbianism in Magical Girl anime. So I was also hoping that maybe you had a pitch, like a little history of Magical Girl stuff or some short version of the, thi- the, the speech you give at conventions. 
Yeah, I uh, I do um, I do talk at conventions, um, particularly San Jose and San Jose. Uh, I have a handful of panels that I've given um, focusing on kind of queerness in anime um, and female queerness in anime specifically. And I do have one about queerness and magical girls because it does seem to be a genre that correlates very heavily with queerness. And anyone who's going to be at Fanime this year uh, in San Jose, if you're going to be there on the Sunday, I will be giving that talk. So please come listen to me ramble about why magical girls are oh so gay. Oh, cool. Um, but yeah, if you want like just a little like history of the genre, you know, the term Maho Shoujo that we use today means magical girl. It's not actually what the genre was initially called um, up until the, hmm. I believe, 80s. We see it referred to as um, like the those kinds of series referred to as majoko, um, which means like little witch girl. But the first what we now today would call Maho Shoujo manga, depending on whom you ask, is either Osuma Tezuka's Ribu no Kishi, Princess Knight, or Fujio Akatsuka's Himitsu no Ako-chan, uh, Secret Ako-chan, which were published in 1953 and 1962, respectively. And then I mentioned that the first Maho Shoujo anime, Maho Tsukai Sari, is considered by many to be, yeah, that first shoujo anime. So when, I, when I'm looking at this you know, through a, my uh, admittedly biased kind of queer feminist lens, I'm frequently focused on the fact that you know that this genre from the get-go was meant for for people like me. This was meant for us um, as young women. And we do see then the genre get revitalized, kind of cemented as far as what the tropes are that we expect to see by Sailor Moon in the 1990s. And essentially what Maho Shoujo are is they're feminine-coded warriors who find strength in female friendship, love, compassion, and other things that are typically looked down upon by a patriarchal society. Too often today when we talk about strong female characters, that tends to be code for female characters who have denied their femininity, who who, who act like male characters, who aren't like the other girls, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being a girl who doesn't like wearing dresses or makeup. But it does feed into this kind of misogynistic idea that there's something inherently weak about the feminine. And magical girls, you know, they, they save the world in miniskirts and high heels. <laughs> I think about, you know, I think about Sailor Moon and I think about these attack phrases. And it doesn't get a whole lot girlier than Starlight Honeymoon Therapy Kiss. Uh, or, or my favorite example always is a uh, star gentle uterus. What is that one from? Yeah, that's the season of Sailor Moon. That is star um, Sailor Star Maker's attack phrase. Um, it's how 12 year old Marley learned the word uterus. Did not learn that from Sinsen. Thank you, Sailor Moon. I've only seen season one. There's a long journey ahead of me. (laughs) The thing is that these girls, they're taking power from what makes them explicitly feminine. Mm -hmm. And they need each other instead of needing boys. You know, there's some some Maho Shoujo series, like there is a romance or, you know, a hetero romance. But it's never the key player to the story. 
in the early 2000s, excuse me, in the 2000s, uh, we do see shonen titles appearing in the genre. Um, so these are series that even though they still are about magical girls, they are aimed at a young male demographic. And when we're talking about like kind of sheer impact and legacy, the big one's Madoka. And Madoka oh. first aired in 2000. 11 which makes me feel really old <laughs> it's a dramatic shift toward these kind of darker magical girl shows yeah, i can't get into it too much because you know don't want to spoil but I, I don't think you can go into Madoka, mm-hmm. you know at this point what more than a decade later without already knowing that it's yeah i just wanted to ask a quick question here um yeah. if someone's introduction to magical girls is madoka is that Good or bad? Well, see, I have I have a lot of feelings about Madoka because I love it. Oh. Phenomenal. You know, it does what it does so well. It's not the first Maoshoja series to be darker, right? It's preceded by things like Utakata in 2004, 2006, I think 2004. Um, and uh, Utena in 1997, which is one of my all-time favorite series. An absolute, just beautiful, dark, symbolic deconstruction of both magical girls and um, fairy tales. But it does what it does very well. It does what it does aimed at that male demographic that makes the big bucks and tends to be less derided um, in the community. Mm-hmm. And I think what we've seen since Madoka, it's kind of legacy, is that you know people are like, ah, yes, there's this incredible tension in this juxtaposition between these kind of cupcake cute characters and this darker plot line. And unfortunately... The magical girl genre, it's devolved a little bit into kind of like who can out dark the series that came before them. It's become this kind of misery porn that I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with you if you enjoy that. But for me, it takes away a lot of what made the genre originally so empowering, which was not about let's make these cute little girls miserable. It was about let's show the power in their femininity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Madoka... We're coming back to center a little bit, finally, I think. It's finally starting to turn back. You know, whenever I think about kind of framing the series, it's so good. And it does what it does so well. And I do think, unfortunately, we took away a lot of the wrong messages Mm. from what made it work. And so its impact on the genre has been um, a little unfortunate. And and so was it, does that mean it was a very, like, financially successful show that then kind of subsequent shows were trying to replicate recreate that magic and that's why they stuck with the darkness yes and they've just tried to get darker and darker there i mean there oh there was one golly when did it come out it was 2017 maybe 2018 called maho shoujo site that was like i mean there was like a scene of i don't a girl like literally like eviscerating a man who i think he had raped her i was like this is not not what i got into magical girls for (laughs) yeah have you seen an anime called recreators no i have not seen that one tell me tell me well that was my introduction to the idea of a magical girl uh it's the same writer and creator of um what's that like the gangsters are on a boat uh gangsters are on a boat wait black lagoon yes black lagoon i'm sorry (laughs) okay but it was kind of like a reverse isekai it was um characters from many different franchises coming into the real world uh, and one of them was a magical girl and this is on my yeah. to watch this is on my always keep it under 100 to watch list but yeah there was this deconstruction element of like this magical girl entering the real world and like seeing blood for the first time in combat hmm. 
just interesting because you know that there's a power to embracing a darker plot line because people go through dark shit in their lives and there's something empowering sure. about seeing someone who has gone through that, you know, coming out the other end or even not coming out the other end, but still kind of feeling validated by them. And then there is what a lot of these series since Madoka have become. Right. So somebody said the magic word, which is deconstructionist. So like th- I have heard that Madoka Magica is uh, similar to Neon Genesis in a way um, and similar to, I guess, several of the shows that we tried to cover on this in that it's kind of a deconstruction of the genre. I, I've watched the first two episodes, which we're going to watch and go into today. Um, but I get the sense that it's going to deal heavily with the idea of child soldiers, which is a repeated thing in these deconstructionist works. Because like, you know, oftentimes in Power Rangers or Neon Genesis or especially like the things that come before those, it, it kind of goes without saying that, of course, it has to be these young people who are the chosen ones, the ones who fight. And the reason is because it's being marketed towards young people, right? But like if we deconstruct the world that would actually employ these young people as child soldiers, we might find something that is you know, abhorrent to our sensibilities. Yeah. And so so I guess going into this one, so Alex and I have only watched the first two episodes. Blixa, you've watched the whole series multiple times. Is that right? That's correct. Um, and, and so you'll be kind of leading us through the series. And then Alex and I are, are going to take turns kind of being the guinea pig for different episodes and uh, the other mm. person... Uh, helping walk through the episodes. But I guess today we, we've we all three of us um, watched them. And I assume based on the conversation, Marley, you've also seen this series more than a few times. Is that right? Definitely more than once. <laughs> Definitely more than once, yeah. <laughs> well, do, do we want to get started on episode one then? Are we are we going to try to do a, a watch during this meeting? Yeah, we'll try. And if if everybody's internet holds out, that'll be great. We'll watch through it, have it fresh and talk about it. And if the internet doesn't work out, then we'll we'll can the watch through and we'll just try to discuss as best we can. Um, Yeah. Is there anything else uh, you think people should know about uh, Magical Girl stuff before we go into the discussion, Marley? I, I think I think we've covered certainly just the very basics of like, you know, what it is to be a magical girl and sort of where Madoka fits into the scheme of these things as one of these early titles in the genre aimed at young men instead of aimed at young women. And actually, just to touch on that, I mean, so watching the first two episodes, it wasn't clear to me that this was a show necessarily aimed at young men. Like what? Oh, it wouldn't be. <laughs> Is that just like from the like how the show was marketed or what what is it that like might make this different than if it were a shoujo anime? It has to do a lot a lot with the way the show's marketed. It has to do a lot with where the show's kind of placed in terms of um you know when it airs or where it airs, you know, where like the manga version is going to be printed. A lot of um anime get their demographics based purely on where the manga is printed, if it's in a shonen or a shoujo magazine. Oh, okay. Um just looking at you know, target demographics, of course, are not the only people who watch this stuff, but yeah, but I think it's telling that when, you know, and, and we don't get to see this. So, you know, we see the hints of it in the first two episodes, right? It's episode three is where, where shit hits the fan, so to mm-hmm. speak. 
Um, but where, you know, we are only starting to see the hints of the fact that this is not necessarily going to be the same kind of empowering story of femininity that we're used to in Mahal Shoujo, which is part of what made it so mm-hmm. important and so good and so widely received. Um, it wasn't what was expected yet. Man, I'm glad you asked that, Ben, and said that, Marley. I, I guess I've never really thought of it that way, but like genres are not something that exists within a work. It is an external structure, right? And often, you know, it's usually dictated by theming or an, even an artist's other works, but all too often it is dictated by uh, uh, marketing, by like, you know, financial concerns, things like that. Whereas the work may be suitable for who knows, like anybody, but it is someone in a corporation decides who it's going to be marketed to. Fascinating. I mean, it's a lot like um, I, I'm a writer and I always think of, you know, they talk about, well, where on what bookshelf in Barnes and Noble does mm. the book sit? Right. And right. that's something that people struggle with. Like, you know, if their protagonist, for example, is 14 years old, is that sitting on the middle grade shelf or on the young adult shelf? And it's mm. just because of that, that it's really freaking hard to publish books with protagonists at about that age, even though that's a really important age to have books that mm. like feature protagonists for. <laughs> But they don't get published because Barnes & Noble doesn't know where to put yes, them. Heard, yeah. Like it was the same thing that happened to the death of the new adult genre, which was supposed to be early 20s aged protagonists. It, it, it does feel like we have a lot of anime that does focus on that like 14 year old age, whereas I feel like for like a Western thing, they would probably just bump it up to like 16 or 18 or something like that. Like we seem to like mm-hmm. that verge of adulthood more than like the start of puberty for some reason with where where the marketing is like what what systems are already in place to tell us like where we can put this on our shelf before we jump in can i just to satisfy my curiosity since marley has seen over 400 (laughs) anime i i've often wondered like is the majority of anime like focusing on teenage characters or is that just what we in american audiences are seeing i i think definitely the overwhelming majority of anime are focused on um you know, elementary, middle, high school aged students. It's a lot rarer that you find series starring adult characters. They're definitely out there and a lot of them are phenomenal. I've got a couple of favorites um, that would fall into the Jose, which is going to be the kind of young adult and, you know, woman aged in graphic or um, Sinan mm-hmm. is the equivalent for men. But it's true that the, the majority are aimed or, or do focus on young people. I think, I mean, and this is this is me being purely speculative. I suspect that there's something to be said for the fact that we've all been children, so we all relate to their struggles, whereas only adults relate to adult struggles. That's fascinating. I was just thinking, like, I think there's a similar split in America, too. Like, we haven't had an advent of adult animation in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. But I assume it's still because there is a bias against like that cartoons are for children, you know, like an animated thing to people who don't really enjoy animation. They think it's for kids. I I actually just got back from a two week trip in Japan. So I'm a little bit dealing with the the jet lag still. But where were you? I used to live in Ikebukuro. Oh, uh, I I lived um, for a year in Okachimachi. But uh, so I, I was in Tokyo and then a few days in Kyoto, bopped down to Nara for a second, uh, but was mainly in Tokyo. And uh, I don't know, it was sort of a 
reminder of just like how culturally present <laughs> animation is over there. It's sort of like, like I didn't do any explicit anime tourism, but just like, you know, stumbled across like my hotel was near Square Enix and they had like a cafe with stuff with that and like, you know, went to a, a shopping mall and like there was like the kind of Shin Evangelion, Shin Godzilla, Shin, whatever the new one mm. is. Uh, they had like a exhibit thing there and like all this like merch and stuff. And I don't know, it's just like everywhere, like every, you know, half the advertisements in the subway have like some manga drawing on them. It felt like it's more prevalent, but it's I, I think that's it definitely it, it is everywhere, as you said. Um, and I think that some of the very mainstream stuff you know pervades the entire culture there's certainly every little kid every like three-year-old four-year-old kid draws in kind of the anime style or even like you know on whatever day it is and i don't know what it is you see all the businessmen on the train like reading like the shonen jump Mm. magazine (laughs) nonetheless i mean that's only for the more the style of it i think is more pervasive but still definitely kind of a niche to be like an otaku. Yeah. Uh, if you like stuff that's beyond kind of the very mainstream, the, you know, the the One Piece and the Naruto and so on, um, it's still considered kind of a, a niche um, hobby, much the way that it is here. Fascinating. Okay, cool. Uh, all right. Any, this, this is all wonderful digressions, but uh, any other things before we go into watching this? Okay, cool. Well, I am really excited now. Yeah, me too. Okay, I'm there. All right. Three, two, one, play. I love the two styles of animation, right? Like when she's in her day-to-day life, it's a normal place. Everything's boxy and clean and wonderful. But when she's in this night world, this shadow verse, like following the witches or whatever in her dreams, it's all this muddy, different styles and everything's bizarre. It's so good. Artistically, a fascinating yeah. show. Yeah, lots of gear imagery too. Both like physical gears and locking mechanisms and things, but also these like spiral interconnected designs. Right, I know this band. They do a lot of anime themes. Really? It, it sounds kind of like that um, that guy that you like a lot, Blixa. Tsuzuma Hirasawa? I think like the chanting reminds me of like the oh my perfect gosh. blue chanting kind of. You're fired. <laughs> ben and Alex, what is your first impression? I'm fascinated. I really like I I I watched it to do the outline for the second episode. Uh, and then I just watched it again today with Tanya. Um, and I'm it, it took a lot of willpower not to watch the third episode <laughs> because one, I had heard from some people that, oh, there's a that's an inflection point. The first two episodes kind of set up the world a little bit. But then the third really explains what's going on or or there's a catch or something like my initial impression is that I'm I'm really impressed by the way everything flows together, especially the difference in these two worlds that she inhabits, because that's a common thing in a lot of fiction. But I think that's like integral to the magical girl genre is characters who inhabit two worlds, right? She doesn't just get to go be a superhero. It's a lot like uh, uh, the American Spider-Man, right? 
he doesn't just get to go get be Spider-Man. He has to be Peter Parker too. And so Madoka is going to have to continue being a student in these boxes, these like clear glass cubes that she's always inhabiting at home or at school, or even when she goes to this music store, it's like that. But then every episode, I, I assume and I hope she will step into one of these dark realms, this like mystery fantasy dream world where the animation is changes and the physical laws of reality change, which like that juxtaposition is really exciting me. Yeah, I also was very uh, curious after watching these. I think the animation grabbed me right from the start. That sort of like black and white background stuff that they do right at the beginning which reminded me a little bit of like Monogatari and like the weird abstract backgrounds they have in that show. And yeah, very curious to see, see where this goes. I like the slice of life part of it. Like it feels like, like there's kind of like a lot of specificity there. The, that part hasn't quite hooked me yet. I think like so far it's kind of just the, the mysteries that they've set up with this cube and the, the contract and yeah, this this kind of question of like, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? You know, it feels like we got the warning that she should not change in this episode and that she's going to become a magical girl and uh, there will be bad consequences to that, but then maybe ultimately good consequences. And then I don't know, it feels like where it's going. Yeah, that sounds like a strong prediction to me. So question for Marley. How quickly does Madoka deviate from the magical girl template? Immediately, because every series I can, I, I mean, I, I'd be happy to be wrong, but I can't think of another magical girl series where she doesn't become a magical girl right in the first episode. Mm. Um, so something I was kind of wondering, so we get that, it feels like a cold open, then she wakes up from mm. this dream. But I do wonder if we're going to loop back there to that same scene, right? And that. You know, I guess at that point, she hasn't chosen yet. She hasn't committed. So, yeah, I don't know. Now that makes me wonder if most of the series will be actually her vacillating, trying to decide whether or not she should make this decision or not. Final episode, she finally becomes the magical girl. <laughs> <laughs> we all live happily ever after. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I think we often bring things back to Evangelion just because that's what this podcast originally started with. But, you know, that's like a big thing mm -hmm. in that, it's, right? It's like, will he get in the robot or not? And I mean, I guess he gets in the robot. Does that happen? I guess that happens at the end of the first episode, right? Yeah. We don't really get the combat until the second episode. But then a lot of the series is still him just like vacillating about whether or not he actually wants to fight or not, right? Yeah. Is it a morally right thing to fight? Am I capable of it? Do I want to do it? Because obviously it's uncomfortable for him. No, yeah, yeah. So do you want to take us through this, Blixa? That's a lot of pressure. I didn't realize that we were going to have this like leading expert as a guest. <laughs> like now my outline is like... This is not who I am. <laughs> I've been mischaracterized. <laughs> well, here, let me let me start us off then. So I'm really fascinated by the slice of life stuff all, right off the bat because of the strong visual, I don't know if it's symbolism or parallels we have there. Uh, so like her mom, like we have these really striking shots. Her, she gets ready with her mom in the morning, right? Which is... This is a very common thing in in uh, uh, families. A lot of times uh, young women are taught 
to groom themselves, to do makeup, to do things by their mothers, right? This is this is a, a very common bond. So it, it's going to feel familiar to a lot of people because uh, even if you haven't experienced it, you've probably seen it in your own family or a, a loved one's family. And what she's getting from her mom is very specific. Her mom is a corporate person. Uh, she's wearing a suit to work. And what struck me was her makeup. They have this strong shot that they linger on for just long enough, I think, that it's not that she has a lot of makeup. It's not that she has like very expensive brands or anything, because how would you convey that right off the bat? But she it's regimented. This is something she does every day for a specific purpose. We don't know if it's what she wants to do with her look and makeup, but we know that this is what she does because the makeups are numbered. There is a specific way that she does it every day. And I feel like she doesn't deviate from that formula, which reminds me of this quote from a book uh, I really love, which is uh, clothing is armor. And like makeup oftentimes is armor too, right? Like the way you present yourself to people puts them on guard or off guard. It, 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 it informs those initial uh, interactions with them. So like right off the bat, it's got me hooked on the slice of life stuff. There's also, because that shot, it, it is so interesting of um, her mother's kind of makeup setup. It makes me think a little bit of um, uh, like insect specimens or something mm. labeled, like laid out <gasps> and labeled. It gives me that kind of feeling of this being something quantified in this way. It's no longer maybe the magical compact of Sailor Moon with its just sort of um, ephemeral magic. It is something that we use in this exact way. Uh, what Quantitative is the word I'm coming up with. That's not the right word. Shoot. Well, whatever. Uh, we use in this very specific laid out way because we know it has this specific effect. It's lost some of that intangible kind of vibe whimsy. <laughs> yeah, that esoteric allure that oftentimes comes with dressing yourself up for, you know, ritualizing uh, uh, your your appearance. Um, it was confusing to me. It does seem very intentional, uh, but it does not seem like the routine that I'm familiar with. Like my makeup is very much about my feeling and my mood and my self-expression, mm -hmm. but this feels like an agenda. And um, I can't tell if there's something positive or negative or it's not either it feels like she's teaching her kid like something that might be useful i have something very specific on my mind it's like kind of fucked up so i'm just gonna say it and we can edit it out later uh I, I was recently in a debate with five people uh transphobes that were denying my status as womanhood and um i didn't realize it at the time but they were all looking at my social media through the course of the discussion and then they shared screenshots, which was humiliating. But um, they said that, like, that they disagreed with all the stuff I said, but they all agreed that I was hot. And one of them said that if I wasn't so hot, it wouldn't have been as civil, a nice of a discussion. Mm. And I said, so you're saying, like, that's where a person's worth is. I think they're saying that's where a woman's worth is, which is not only transphobic, but misogynistic. Yeah. And then like, it was a gross feeling because um, they couldn't respect me as a human. It's because looking at me gave them pleasure. And that's why I was able to spend 30 minutes with them to talk about these issues. It's a weird thing because I didn't I wasn't going to convince them. I wanted to convince the thousand people that 
they had following them collectively. So anyway, that's what was on my mind watching this. Like the mom is going to go into like a male dominated environment and like she's successful, like by appearances, what it, what it seems like Mm -hmm. it's weaponized. It's like weaponized beauty, I guess. That's like the feeling I get from it. Well said. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Like, cause like on, on one level, it did feel like reinforcing like these shitty beauty standards um, generationally, but you know, just the way it was all presented, it made me wonder like what's really going on there. Well, I, I feel one little piece of hope in the scene like that, that all sounds a little bit like regimented and kind of constraining for, for anyone who wants to wear makeup. Right. But there was this one little piece of hope and that's that she asks her mom, which ribbon should I wear? And her mom says the bright red pink one, right? Like wear the one that makes you stand out, the one you like, because that's the one that Madoka seemed to want to wear, but she wasn't going to wear it because it was too flashy. But but she doesn't quite say that. She doesn't quite say wear the one that you like, right? She's like, oh, wear the flashy one. You're supposed to be flashy. Like that's that's like Mm. how women derive their power or something like that, right? Like, okay. Uh It's not an entirely feminist message. It's not an unfeminist message i think it walks a very gray line and you know when we talk about kind of makeup as something that can be very empowering and can also be very restrictive you know it is an item that can have so many different meanings depending on why it's used and how it's felt about by the person using it Um, it Mm -hmm. seems that her mother takes joy in her regimen of makeup, she seems to be a confident woman um, who is pleased with what she is doing and how she's presenting herself. But I don't know about the messaging that Madoka is getting from that. Mm. I guess I like that it's uncomfortable. I always like being uncomfortable. Like, it makes for yeah. a good series. Yeah. <laughs> I like that it makes us think. Yeah. So her mom, in some ways, is reinforcing these gender stereotypes, right? But in other ways, she's defying them right like she's the one with the high-powered job like we just barely met the dad and we we don't or at least i don't know yet if he has a separate job or something but i took it to be that he's a house partner that he is the one taking care of the house and feeding the children yeah they have a very young child yeah and and he's the one at home taking care of the the young boy right like i i really find her fascinating the mom fascinating right off the bat or actually the family dynamic fascinating right off the bat because it is a mix of these stereotyped behaviors and the reverse of them, right? Which is very relatable because no one is completely, you know, going into gender stereotypes or railing against them. Like we're all somewhere on that spectrum. Mm. Well, I'll just say the thing that I'm thinking of, like my partner is in a male dominated office and uh, does not give any fucks about upholding any weird, unreasonable beauty standards. Uh, And she does have coworkers that do. And they get heard more than she does. And it seems like some of those people are leveraging what is going to give them an advantage for right or wrong. Yeah. All I can say is I'm proud of my partner. I can't say that anyone else is bad for taking advantage of something that they can use to get ahead, but it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And I guess I also have a a partner in a very male domain and, you know, like, you can't completely opt out. Like you're going to get judged either way, no matter what you do. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Either, either way, the gender influences things, I guess. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, can you sort that out for us, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> like, next next week, just resolve yeah. patriarchy yeah. for us. That'd be really cool. Be good. We're we're just all gonna be our avatars and not know anyone's gender. Okay, Ooh, okay. a purely virtual existence. I like that. There's a certain justice. They've, they've actually they've proposed that for like court cases because your appearance and demographics actually matter a ton for sentencing so they're like let's just <laughs> eliminate humans but no one wants that everyone wants to judge people based on their impressions so man that's a fascinating concept anyway we're we're off madoka i took us way off topic <laughs> yeah okay so so that's her home life yeah. so far younger brother two stable parents and now on her way to school we see she has a healthy social life already she has two strong friends is it sayaka and Saika and Hitomi and Hitomi. Okay. And Saika's, you know, very mushy, funny friend. And then Hitomi seems more the straight man in the, in the, in the friendship, you know, she's kind of the, the responsible one and she has a lot of things to do. And, and also I think it said something about like her being rich in a way that uh, Madoka and Saika are not rich. And she's more traditionally you know, trained in kind of classical arts, like she takes tea ceremony lessons and things mm. that would be associated with kind of wealth and culture and beauty in women. Um, kind of that like um, Yamako Nadeshko kind of like trope or archetype, excuse me. And finishing school kind of stuff. That's interesting. I may have read too much into... Um... The, the classroom scene. I don't know why it stuck out to me. Like the teacher is having problems with her partner and, you know, airing it out to the class. Like, I guess her partner doesn't like the way that she cooks eggs. <laughs> I immediately thought of like ovaries. I thought, oh, yeah. there's uh, there's some coding happening here. What are they saying? I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> Maybe someone on the show will be able to enlighten me. I don't know if you're reading too much into it or not. Like it might just be coincidence, but I love it as like a possibility yeah. that it was purposefully done. Yeah. Well, she's talking about egg. Well, we see a lot in anime. Like I, I feel like it's kind of, it's a worn out kind of comedic device, right? The female teacher who is taking out her bad love life on her students. Mm. And it's kind of, you know, it's an obnoxious thing that essentially says that all that, you know, women care about is their love lives and they also suck at them. Um, and meanwhile, suck at their jobs because they're sucking at their love lives. <laughs> it's funny, I haven't thought of the the ovary. You know, it's one of these things where I'm like, hmm, is this just coincidence? Are we reading too much? But also, it's just, I love to think that. So I'm going to headcanon now that she <laughs> is trying to tie this. <laughs> I can't remember how she said it. It was like something about don't judge a woman and her eggs. And I immediately thought of this freaking debate uh, with the transphobes about like, what is a woman? And they were reducing it down to like a baby maker mm -hmm. or like a piece of meat. And it's, you know, it it's, they're ta maybe talking allegorically about, you know, ovaries, but she's specifically talking about cooking eggs, which is another stereotypically, uh, uh, you know, female concern, mm -hmm. right? A, a women's concern. What was Madoka's dad who was doing the breakfast cooking? Yeah. Yeah, that guy uh, so particular about his eggs, he can cook his own fucking eggs, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but then we meet our our new student, right? Who comes in like a bat out of hell, like talk about confidence. So who who is this? Homura, and like she just feels so like villain coded or badass coded. I don't know. 
I, I always immediately code any character who comes in and is described as being really beautiful and has long black, like traditionally Japanese hair. Mm-hmm. I'm always thinking of Yamato Nadeshko, which is like the traditional stereotypes of like Japanese beauty and culture and refinement. Hmm. Like she definitely uh, to me gives off that air of yeah. like the perfect, the idealized. And she's good at everything. Yeah, she's good at math. She's good at jumping. <laughs> the two main things, math and jumping. <laughs> two jumpers, math and jumping. <laughs> but it's uh, it's Madoka's dream girl. And like Madoka's all... See, again, I couldn't really read it. I don't know if she's just like freaked out because this is a person I saw in my dreams and now she's here. Or if there was like some particular feelings. I don't know. Yeah, so we do get kind of two weird things that seem to be hinting um, or foreshadowing maybe right at like possible queerness in the story. So we have the friend being like, oh, like I'm going to marry you. It's not some boy, right? Mm, yeah. And and then that mm-hmm. moment where it is a little bit like, oh, yeah, is she like crushing on this girl or is it, you know, just because she saw her in the dream and so she's kind of like freaked out about now seeing her in real life. Huh. I never thought about like Homura and Sayaka being like personality opposites. Hmm. Oh yeah, that makes sense actually. But um, also Homura is uh, uh, color coded a little bit with the mom because they both have this purple accent color symbolism. So like the mom and her share the same purple eyes even though Homura has black hair. Um, And then I think even when she transforms, her accent color is purple, just like Madoka's accent color is going to be pink, right? Oh, gosh. So this is where, like, the cultural differences uh, get me, because, like, I think of purple as, like, a queer coding color. (laughs) But I don't know if that translates into Japan. Hmm. My knowledge, it doesn't. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, in uh well that comes after this, but in uh Darling and the Franks, the one for sure gay character we get was uh coded purple. Oh, uh, Ikeno. Yeah. Okay, so we've got two of her worlds or we've got foundation for her uh, uh physical existence, you know, but she's soon going to be visited by her spiritual, her magical existence. She has these this scene with Sayaka and uh Hitomi was it the other friend? Yeah where they have lunch together, I guess it is. And if that was their cafeteria, oh my gosh, they have the nicest cafeteria ever. And the Sayaka and uh, Madoka, they decide to, on the way home, hit up a music store. And Hitomi can't come because she has uh, tea practice. Whoa, uh, whoa, 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 whoa. We, we jumped over something super important. Homura's warning, like, don't change or you'll lose everything. Like this confrontational Mm. question that's like anything but casual. You would never ask someone that that you just met, like, do you love your family? (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, she's definitely trying to influence Madoka in a specific path. And yeah, clearly knows something about Madoka, but we don't know how. And then going to our, our action scene, like reality bleeds over from the music store to this dream world and you know Cube is being hunted by uh, Homura. I love the the choice of a music store to be the first place that she encounters this other world because music in media in anime in cinematic things is oftentimes the link between 
the diegetic reality and the emotional truth of something. So like they go, they physically step from this music store into this other realm, which doesn't look like it's part of the music store at all. Uh, and they also, in that's when they first step into this, this magical world. Is it the magical world? Like it does kind of look like the back hallways of a shopping mall or something. Because like when I think about the magical world, I think of like all the two dimensional cutout art, right? Pretty quickly appears in that back, yeah, that under true. kind of basement or whatever of the shopping mall. We do see then it kind of starts to transform in this almost like hallucinogenic way into mm-hmm. the, the witch's labyrinth of those the two D cutout art. Yeah, yeah. And we saw some we saw a shot that we'll see repeated, which is a green exit sign, which like has particular importance to me because of Neon Genesis, because it's prominently displayed in the last two episodes. And Utena. Oh, in Utena too. Oh, really Shojukakume Utena is all about the those kinds of emblematic mm. signs. That's gonna be around the same time as Evangelion, right? What what year was Evangelion? Is that 90? 95. 95. Okay. Utena is just after that, 97. Yeah, pretty close contemporary. But this exit sign appears, it will definitely appear in the next episode, right before they step into the magical world proper, right? They go into this back room, which looks like an abandoned mansion. It doesn't look like it's part of the store, and they see this green exit sign. But they ignore it. It's also there in that intro. Oh. I don't know if I can say the thing I'm thinking because I don't know. It it comes up in episode two, but Mm. I already know what's going on. But you've already said you don't trust Cubay. So (laughs) no, I'll go go ahead. I'll go ahead and say it. Like this fucking thing can like grant wishes and alter reality. And it's like hurt because Homura's throwing shit at it. It's like, no, like it's mm-hmm. playing the victim mm-hmm. to like win over M- Madoka and it's manipulative. <laughs> Absolutely. And it I don't think Kyube is the only one playing a part here in manipulating Madoka because we get our fourth magical girl or, or I assume that Sayaka and Madoka will both become magical girls. But we get our introdu- our last introduction for the episode. Mami Tomoe. Is that how you say her name? Uh, she shows up and she is just the magical girl. She's like the resplendent, beautiful person you you look up to. She's an upperclassman. So what what what's up with her? You you said you really liked her, Marley. I do. I love her, but I don't think what I love about her is evident yet. So okay, okay. I, I, I I can't. <laughs> but I do. I do adore her. Of of the main girls in the series, she is my favorite. Mommy raises the bar. Like we saw Homura and we're like, oh, she's the badass. But then mommy shows up and like, no. She's a very different kind of badass. Yeah. yeah, she's on a different level, in a different grade, so to speak. It's interesting when I think about manipulation in the series. You know, you talked about feeling like Hubei is manipulating her, and clearly you also are suspicious of mommy manipulating her. And also Homura is manipulating her just to a different end, clearly. And we don't understand what those ends are. But Homura obviously has an agenda and wishes to influence Madoka in whatever way that she can. Um, Something I think once you've seen the whole show and can reflect on sort of the different ways in which people kind of Hmm. try to manipulate Madoka into being or not being who she wants to be yeah and i guess this episode too we have like you know the mom kind of telling her 
a little bit about how she should dress. And then you have like the teacher telling the kids, you know, like, you know, how they should be in relationships. And <laughs> maybe that is just adolescence as you have all these competing people telling you how to be and you have to sort of figure out who to listen to and who not to listen to. Yeah. And it all seems perfectly clear in hindsight. But when you're going through it, experiencing it, it's like the most confusing thing in the world. You're all going to have to help me out here. Like I've deconstructed gender norms so much now that I don't know what our gender norms are now. Like when I'm thinking about a series of people manipulating our main character, I'm like immediately thinking about, oh, this is the female experience. Like all these different influences competing to dictate how this person should be as opposed to like boys I don't even know if this is accurate anymore. Like the gender norm for boys is like, they're going to blaze their own trail and be John Wayne or whatever. Or maybe it's just a universally human experience. I don't know anymore. I I see it as pretty universal, but I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there's gender differences too. Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree. I think it is a universal experience. Everyone growing up has that. And I think you're right, Blixa, the narrative that uh, young men are are fed in our society is that you're going to be your own person. You're going to be the head of a household. You're going to be, you know, the hero of the story when that narrative is not actually useful to them. I mean, I think it can be empowering, but like to say that they are going to be it, the the hero of the story and the head of the household, you know, what's unsaid there is that if they have a female partner, that they will not be the hero of the story. It's not exactly what's said, but what goes unsaid that I think is the damaging part of that narrative. Well, sorry, just uh, because of the time, do do we want to skip mm-hmm. the second episode watch and just go to discussion for episode two? If everybody feels comfortable with that, I definitely, uh, uh, I think I can bring us through that episode with uh, Blix's help. So right off, we get another like, the first episode starts with a dream, right? And this one starts with, well, was it all just a dream? You know, it seems so unbelievable that even though she walked home and had dinner and went to bed, Madoka still feels like, well, maybe that was just a dream when she wakes up. But Kyube is already there in her room, which was a red flag <laughs> for me. Uh, you know, magical being or not, I, I don't think you should just invite yourself into someone else's room. It, it hits really different than Sailor Moon. Like Luna shows up and Luna's just a cute cat and they're talking and like, Cubic's <laughs> just got weird energy. Like those eyes. And rabbit eyes. Yes, yes. Thank you. Oh my God. He's not identifiable as like, like, what is he? Like Luna was very clearly like, I guess, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm being a little unfair to Cube when I think about like other like, cute animals from outer space kind of maho shoujo sidekicks many of them are not recognizable as specific creatures yeah but like they still their eyes still do normal anime eye things but like kyubei's different kyubei just has those (laughs) red spheres that don't change it's unsettling also kyubei doesn't talks but only talks telepathically its mouth doesn't move, which like the cat from Sailor Moon, the mouth moves. So at least, you know, other people can hear it talking. It's like an uncanny valley thing, right? Yes. And my other my last design comment on uh, Cubey is that it has ears like cat ears, but then it has these ears coming out of the ears. Yeah. Ah. Ears within ears. 
<laughs> in my in my head, they were two separate structures. But on this watch through, I was like, oh, they're coming out of the ears. That's so bizarre. Maybe it's adorable. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not a dream. Uh, and neither was what's her name? Uh, 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 Tomoe? Mommy. Uh, mommy was not a dream uh, and invites Madoka and Saika to come over to her apartment, which like, this is another red flag for me. She's like, oh, come in. I live alone. I'm like, you're 15. Why do you live alone in an apartment? This is highly irregular. I don't know. I just have so many questions about mommy. Okay. So again, I don't know if this is a cultural difference because like it does happen so much Mm. in so many anime. There's a teenager who's like living independently. I remember I asked my mom about that. It's like, does that happen? Is there like a high school student that transfers to another district and is going to live on their own for their education? She's like, I don't know. (laughs) Tell you that what certainly happens here, here for me being California is there are a lot of children who um, are children um, of, you know, particularly Chinese parents um, who come over here to receive an education in America for their um, high school years and may live alone for huge swaths of the year. Um, or, you know, like their dad will still will be back in China, like making money. Um, sometimes their mom comes with them. But I, I've known a number of high schoolers who moved here internationally by themselves for the sake of their education. And the school districts kind of just let it slide. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Like, or they'll, like, they'll have an aunt, you know, who's technically in charge of them. But, yeah. uh, but I think, but I feel like the reason we see it in anime is the same reason we, that like, you know, in, children's literature there are so many orphans is it it's helpful when you want the children to be the driving force of the story yeah Mm -hmm. and it's also a sign of kind of maturity here that's where i was going like okay i didn't know if it was accurate or not but i was like is the takeaway here that like she's one of them but she's not one of them she's like more adult than the rest of them Mm -hmm. i always think about kind of again the isolation that so many magical girls face um and mm. which i think part of is part of what makes the genre so strong because you know so many of us feel like we too have experienced that kind of isolation and mommy is already being situated as isolated she is admirable in her isolation the girls are looking up in her isolation but she doesn't really seem to have anyone beyond Bay. she doesn't really you know we don't get any sense that she has a support structure she seems to sort of mm-hmm. be there to do her job and she performs it beautifully and elegantly and admirably in this way that the other girls can admire, but being mm-hmm. admired is not always you know, the same thing as being loved or being part of the community. And I guess we, we don't know um, what's going on with, uh, is it Humura is the, yeah, the transfer student, right? We don't know what's going on with her friends and family, right? But she's mm-hmm. warned uh, Madoka, you know, like if you go down this path, you're, you know, potentially going to lose your friends and family or something bad might happen to them. And now we see this character that doesn't seem to have friends and family, right? Oh, gosh. Wow. Yeah. Homer and mommy don't have people. They're both isolated. isolated. And gosh, mm. darn it. This like feels so much more sinister, like about Cubay now, because like that's a predatory thing to isolate somebody. 
Oh, definitely. So, so in this first scene where there, where uh, uh, mommy is kind of explaining the basics of this world we're living in, you know, for our benefit, the audience, but also Madoka and Saika are considering signing a contract with Kube. They say that if you're going to be a magical girl, you have to fight witches. That's the deal. And like, again, there's this child soldier motif going on where it's like, how come you have to, you know, diegetically, how come you have to enlist these young women as opposed to older people who are more competent, more sure of themselves, more. And the, the offer is not just, oh, you get magical powers, but you have to use them to fight these witches. The offer is, I will grant you a wish, anything you want. But then you're a magical girl. Then you're in this world and you can't get out of it, which at that age seems extremely predatory because what, you know, teenager, adolescent wouldn't jump at the chance to wish for something that they have not considered the implications of. You know, I want to be the tallest person in the world. I want to be the richest person in the world. I want to be all of these things that later in life you act, you wouldn't want them or you, you would consider something a lot more nuanced for your wish. But at this age, Desires are so strong in adolescence. Exactly. It's interesting to see you, you brought up the witches, and I'm always fascinated by the ways in which the witch figure kind of looms large over the Maho Shoujo genre, because you know, witches are also powerful women. These are also mm-hmm. magical, strong women, but they're always cast as kind of the opposite, right? We we see this dichotomy of the magical girl is good and the witch is evil. The magical girl <sighs> is everything okay. feminine and right and beautiful. And the witch is the evil, heretical version of that. And I'm always so interested in the ways in which, you know, the the witch in so many series kind of, it's almost like like the the like ultimate evolution of the magical girl because this is what happens when instead of using your femininity as your power you reject a sense of femininity but you also reject masculinity you say my power is simply what i am completely outside of an idea of beauty norms of gender norms and that makes witches terrifying right there's something that yes that patriarchal societies cannot control they don't care what men think of what they look like what they do and so i find witches come up again and again and again in these magical girl shows you know as as a a mirror and a foil um to our magical girls and i always love seeing what different shows ultimately say about their witches and and so the thing that mommy fights in this is that a witch Yes, I think it is. It's like a tree-like structure with butterfly wings. And the only thing that makes it look vaguely human is the posture of the tree and also the the shape of the the top part. It looks like hair, right? But yeah, other than that, it looks completely inhuman. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, maybe it's spoilers to get into it, but I mean, like, I guess it's unclear to me watching this far whether... Yeah, witches are actually people or if there's some sort of, you know, sort of like supernatural entity or something. This is so difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's right. It's really, really. This is where I was like, oh, shoot, really, really. We're, I can only talk about the first two episodes. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Marley, you don't even know what you did to me. Like, you just connected these dots for me that just blew my fucking mind. But I can't say it out loud because <laughs> these two fucking guys... 
You're going to have patience. Jesus. Yeah. But like, I think you know what I'm thinking. Like, and it's fucking yeah, brilliant. But, but we're, we're, thinking, we're thinking the same things here. <laughs> mm-hmm. <sighs> well, okay. So let's talk about something that we can talk about right here, okay. which is um, something that happens towards the end of the episode is that, so Mommy does do this amazing showy, forceful production of putting down this witch using fascinatingly guns, right? She summons guns, which is, I don't know, there's kind of a male imagery there. The phallic. Yeah, but also it just seems like a magical girl pulling out a gun. That doesn't sound right to me, but I don't know the genre enough, so maybe that's perfectly commonplace. I'd never seen it before. (laughs) I've seen it, but not in anything that predates. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So mommy defeats this witch. And then it, as payment for this, she gets the witch's talisman called a grief seed. And then she uses the grief seed to take away the shading of her own, what do they call it? A soul gem. And to me, the grief seed looked functionally identical to a soul gem. So, like, I'm sure you can't confirm or deny this because it's spoilers, but it seems to me like the witch was a magical girl, that Hmm. a grief seed is a soul gem. It's just what happens to it after taking on so much of this darkness. And the only way that they can maintain their own youthful luster is by Hmm. shoving this darkness off (laughs) onto a surrogate, onto a sacrifice. Regardless of if you're correct or not, I mean, we definitely see these being established as clear foils of each other. Like yeah. whether absolutely whether you are correct or not in your kind of guesses there, I I think it's specifically set up to look like a similar item. Absolutely, and and that speaks to like you said, this witch magical girl dichotomy, um, which is outside of the magical girl genre in a larger, you know, world context, you said it, you said the perfect word, heretical. They are powerful women who are operating outside of the confines of, I think, patriarchy mostly. But like, I I think that witches used to be midwives and witches used to be death mongers. But as doctors and like more codified authoritarian structures, took control of vast swaths of land, those same women who had been practicing, you know, medicine and magic and art and all of these things, they were pushed to the side because they weren't allowed. Demonized. Yeah, they were demonized. And so I I can't tell if this show is going to be tongue in cheek or very knowing about that yet. But to me, it seems like it is. Like the image of this witch is so antithetical to these magical girls, it, it does look like someone who has been pushed outside of hu- uh, human society, as as shown by her inhuman appearance. Hmm. Witchcraft actually was not legal in the United States till 1958. Oh, wow. And it's still illegal, I believe, in parts of Canada and Australia. Wow. I would believe it. Fun facts, right? About, I don't know, I'm, I'm always very taken with the ways in which I think um, queer people tend to gravitate towards kind of witchcraft wicca um as you know kind of a religion that functions outside of a lot of kind of typical um hierarchical patterns and patriarchal patterns mm-hmm. um, i think it's a lot more accessible and open to um queer women and queer people who mm-hmm. want 
a spirituality that kind of recognizes themselves as part of the divine. So that's always, I know, very interesting to me. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that the witch was comprised of like natural elements. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Mm. It's a tree and a butterfly. And then what was the major symbol that wasn't? Oh, scissors. And scissors are such a feminine coded tool, right? For like, you know, clothes making and and household stuff, but also for birth, right? Like you need something like Hmm. scissors to cut the umbilical cord. You also might need something like scissors uh, to do things uh, regarding death, to cut the clothes off of the corpse, to, you know, like scissors as part of that background imagery, just like like a throbbing red sign in my brain. Hmm. So I felt bad for this witch because I didn't get to know her at all. (laughs) You know, they said, oh, this woman was going to jump to her death because of the witch's curse. And yes, there was a visual representation of that, which I'm like, okay, well, that lends some credence to it. But I'm hearing the information about these witches from a source I don't trust already, from Cube and Mommy. You like what they call the witch's kiss. It's, you know, almost like hickey-like, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't know. I, I'm really hooked by this show already. So, yeah, so we, we don't know much about the this witch. We don't know much about the woman who was in distress. Mm-hmm. Just that, like, her behavior seemed like that of someone. That looks like Monica's mother a little bit. Yes, I thought that too. But, like, she she was in a performance of suicide, and it's, like, associated with depression, which, mm-hmm. um, thinking about, like, the black despair shit on... Uh, the grief seed, right? Yeah, I have a line of thought that I just realized I should not say out loud. <laughs> That's okay. We'll have plenty of time for this. We feel like we have to get everything down now, but we'll we'll have time for it. I forgot how brilliant this show was. Yeah, it's pretty good so far. Uh, I don't know where to put it in the discussion, so I have to just mention it now. Sayaka brings a golden bat as her defense, yeah. which I can't help but feel is you know, reminiscent of paranoia agent somehow because it comes after that. But like, I could be reading too much well, of that. Or, or maybe that. just referencing back golden bat. To... Was her bat golden? I thought it was just a bat. Oh, it's a was golden it actually... metal bat. It's golden. And it okay. gets transformed. It gets transformed into something more stereotypically magical girl. It, it remains a bat, but it becomes, you know, ornate and it has a heart on it and it's white and pink and stuff. I'm really liking her and Homura because, well, Sayaka, because, I don't know, she's so enthusiastic, but she also seems kind of prudent. So Sayaka, you know, she references anime when they're having tea around the table at Mammy's Mommy's place. Mm. So it seemed on brand for her to find a golden bat, like if she was looking for something that symbolized power and whatever the legacy of golden bat is in anime culture. Something... uh, metaphysical Mm -hmm. and like uh those backgrounds especially in the magical scenes like they're kind of reminiscent of that paper theater that we have talked about before oh kamishibai yes i love kamishibai where golden bat originates from yes yeah yes yeah okay so did, did it mean anything to you that like when you go into this magical realm things start becoming two dimensional that's weird Well, I think they become more like the difference between symbol and physical is either non-existent or isn't as strong as it is in in their regular lives. Hmm. And there's a whole bunch of symbolism, a whole bunch of little things in there that I can't begin to dissect yet. 
there are those little puff balls that have mustaches have on mustaches. them. Mustaches. Like, like, they're like like I don't know. I don't know if they're cotton puffs or like little dandelion blossoms. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, why do they have mustaches? Is it just to like confuse me as just to make this place fantastical? Uh, 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 ben and I uh, remarked that, or Ben remarked that it was, it looks kind of like uh, Monty Python animations that are so iconic because they're bizarrely drawn. And it's more of like a 2d image that moves across something as opposed to being fully animated. Uh, yeah, it's sort of like surface. a, like almost like yeah collage that's animated like cutouts and stuff and yeah it's it just the theming and the symbolism are already very strong in this show so i am good job blixa you've got me hooked i am so <laughs> psyched it's going to take a lot of willpower not to watch episode three as soon as we got get off of this have i steered you wrong yet <laughs> i don't think so okay so what any other things we need to say about these characters or this episode before we uh, find a place to wrap up was something I was kind of curious about. And I think it would have come up if this was true. But watching this episode, I was like, was this like a AR game or something? Like, it seems like this is like perfect for Pokemon Go where they're like walking around looking for their sensor, looking for witches that are like by highways or <laughs> hospitals. And then and then, you know, you have this like meter that drains down that you need to refresh by fighting witches. Uh, I don't know. But um, w- was there some like video game tie in or something like that? Or is this? I have to think given the popularity of the show that they ultimately made games of it. But I don't I don't think it started that way. I, I don't know. So there is a question I want to ask, but I maybe only Alex and Ben can answer. Like, <laughs> like so we, we don't know what Cubay is, but like, what does Cubay represent? Okay, so the dichotomy that seems to be presenting itself here is that there are two types of magic users. There's magical girls and there are witches, okay? And witches, if we take the the more common real world definition, like they are again, these uh, powerful women who are acting outside of societal constraints or bounds. Right. And so in feminism, as it regards to capitalism and a professional setting, you know, oftentimes there's this idea of tokenism, right? Like, yes, of course, we're going to have a a woman on the board of directors, but only one, right? There's one seat at the table. And so this magical girl angle that we're coming at it from, they specifically set up that there is competition between these girls. You know, they should all just be on one team fighting the witches, but really they have to fight each other too because there's really only one seat at the table for one girl to come out on top. And and given that her mom is talking about these corporate, you know, these corporate power moves, it seems to be that those two things are tied together. And so witches, they cast off that constraint. They say, I'm not going to operate within this hierarchical structure. And so the structure, uh, as a response, it demonizes them and it hunts them down because it can't let young girls know that there's another way to go. It needs them to play into this power dynamic that they need to play the game of being a magical girl. They can't just go be a witch on their own. Are you saying then that Cubay represents capitalism? Yeah. Because that was, that was like a question. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, and, you know, the contract 
uh, uh, Sailor Moon, she agrees to become a magical girl. She agrees to, to seize her destiny and 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 wield the tiara and stuff. But like, she doesn't sign a contract, does she? It seems so formal, so legal. It's a transaction. Yes, absolutely. I thought it was interesting that uh, Mommy framed it as a witch hunt. Mm. So again, I don't know if that's something that translates across culture, because I, I think of witch hunt as a very specifically Western civilization. If you read articles about, you know, witch hunt kind of things still going on in Africa today. So, I mean, maybe maybe that's the influence of Christianity in Africa. I don't know. But yeah, I sort of feel like that might just be like a universal thing. Even outside of like the witch hunts of like, you know, real people, um, you know, in the real world. We certainly, in our fairy tales, have cast witches as the villains who must be hunted down. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm always interested in fairy tales as kind of, you know, our, our first sense of right and wrong, right? They're our first stories. They teach us our first morals. And so from the from infancy, we're taught that witches, that these powerful women outside of kind of the norms of society are the ultimate evil in a lot of cases. If nothing else, to be feared, right? Like, even when they're not specifically bad guys like say uh Macbeth right like the uh, witches aren't the villains of the thing but you must fear and respect their power sorry but I kind of steamrolled what was your question again Blixa because Ben did not get a chance to answer Cube I think I think it was yeah yeah Cube what does he represent so I'm not sure I mean like you know the thing he keeps coming back to is that contract um, especially episode one, that's kind of like the end of the cold open and the end of the episode is him talking about the contract to become a magical girl. And then, you know, that promise of of granting this wish, you know, it does sort of seem like deal with the devil kind of thing or, mm. you know, like almost it's weird because it's, it's, it feels like this sort of mixed metaphor where like becoming a magic girl, there's some elements of it that seem like that could be sort of like coming out or being queer or something like that. But then with Cube mm -hmm. there, I don't know how that would work. And so then, then it seems almost more like getting into like sex work or drugs or something like mm. that. These things that like when you're young, you know, maybe it's like, oh, this is a way to make money or this is a way to be happy. And it's kind of like these easy solutions. But then you like potentially find yourself stuck in a very bad situation. So mm. that's that's kind of where my head is at at this point in the story. Yeah. And my one question that I hope gets answered sometime is like, can the wish be, I wish there weren't any more witches? Can the wish just solve the, the problem instead of saying, well, you get to have anything you want, but then you're, you have to be in service to this battle this dichotomy this violence an adult can think about that <laughs> right yeah okay yes absolutely that like we haven't we haven't discussed from the second episode that i find powerful and interesting throughout the series is kind of the discussion of like well what what would you wish for right what do you have and madoka pretty clearly doesn't have something she wishes like you know she's willing to exchange her life like you know the rest of her life for yeah. and yet she's doodling in her notebook these like drawings of what her outfit would be she's dreaming mm -hmm. her wish seems to be to be the magical girl to be what mommy is she is looking at that you know that empowered girl like herself who is 
doing good and helping people. And that's the wish is to have that. It's it's almost mm. different from your know, most magical girl series start off with the, you know, what the, the rejection of the call to adventure, right? Where she's like, oh, mm. no, I can't possibly. I'm a normal girl. And Madoka, yeah. almost like she's being told, okay, so wait, think about it. And she's like, but I, I don't have something great I would sacrifice anything for, but it doesn't seem like a sacrifice. The thing I want is the thing mm. you're telling me is the the punishment. And there's almost mm. a confidence that she gets whenever she thinks about herself becoming a magical girl. And she's like with her little costume doodles, but then keeps getting kind of punched down a little bit by the other people who like you know, are laughing at her naivete. Yeah. Okay. So th this is why I hate Hubei now. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone should be able to be a magical girl. But Hubei inserts himself into this thing. Hell yes. Put it on a t-shirt. Yeah. I would wear that. Everyone should be able to be a magical girl. Yeah. Like there shouldn't have to be these transactions imposed on this experience. That can be our first Patreon uh, uh, stretch goal is uh, uh, everyone can be a magical girl. T-shirts get printed. Everyone off. should be, not can be, should be. Should be, should be. Okay. Everyone should be a magical girl. I like that. <laughs> well, we have some really interesting dynamics already at play here. You know, we have a little bit of information. We have a lot of mystery and nothing of it seems ham fisted, you know, like I could see watching the the grief seed scene where you first see the grief seed and you go, it's like a lot like a soul gem and not thinking anything of it, you know, just letting it wash over you and that being like some reveal later. But it already has a lot of intricate things that on a rewatch would probably be very rewarding, but also you know, as we are doing with a a, a dismantling, a discussion and a, a close eye look at it are already fascinating. So I'm pretty satisfied. Any any other thoughts on this episode? There's a couple of questions we have to ask Marley, but I feel like we already know the answer. <laughs> so Marley, if uh, someone really, really enjoys uh, Madoka, what would be an anime that you would recommend as a follow up? Oh. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the easy one there's Shoujo Kakume Utena. Revolutionary Girl Utena is going to be my forever and always recommendation for if you like magical girls, if you like lesbianism, if you like strong um, symbolic imagery, like just symbolic like imagery that you could analyze out the wazoo i've often said like if i went back to school and wrote a second thesis it'd be on utena like <laughs> uh, if you like you know, deconstruction of fairy tales and like the idea of what it means to be a prince i mean that is your series i i feel like i need to give a like slightly less like i don't i don't know that utena's mainstream but it's certainly classic enough that i feel like you know anyone listening who's like watched some like magical girls like a likely seen it and i want to give like a more esoteric i don't not esoteric excuse me um i've never come up with words there are too many of them it happens to me too, too many oh words. my gosh a, a slightly more um i guess off the beaten path recommendation from recent maho shoujo series i'm very keen on a uh, review starlight I've seen part of it. It was recommended by one of our guests that comes back, uh, Theta. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, it's yeah, it's about like magical girls essentially doing magical singing theatrical yeah. battles for who gets to be the top star of this theatrical troupe. 
and the battles are hosted by a talking giraffe. Yeah, like visually, it's it's, it's a stunning spectacle. It's fantastic. And it's all an homage to Takarazuka Theater, which is this all-female theatrical troupe that's been operating in Japan for more than 100 years. And it's like my obsession. Yeah, but another anime with an amazing soundtrack. Yes, true. True. Um, and that's another short one. That's, I think, 12 episodes, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe 11. But it's another Yale one for series. So if you're wanting a, a perhaps slightly lesser known and more recent series. And my recommendation for you is Recreators. Yeah, that's I, I, I now am remembering that that's on my to watch list. I'm like, all right, you've just you've just pushed it way the heck up there. I'm watching a number of like the currently airing series this season. But once this season's over, I think I'll move to that one. And then, uh, is there anything that you would like to promote or plug? No, I don't have. I, 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 I have nothing to promote but a love of anime. But, but if you're going to FanimeCon in San Jose um, <laughs> Memorial Day weekend. Do check out the Queerness and Magical Girls panel and you know, say howdy. I guess that's really all I can promote of myself for the time being. Love it. Well, we would definitely like to keep you on the short list. This has been delightful. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. I hope I didn't ramble too much. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh my gosh, you're so informative. You're yeah, great. we've been very disorganized this episode, so apologies about that. <laughs> All right, here we go. Pen. Pen. Pals. Star Gentle Uterus. That's fucking awesome. <laughs>